0: This this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM.
1: Welcome to Safety Wars, Wednesday, October 12th, 2022. We got an exciting night tonight. Our main story is going to be construction confined space entry, we're going to be going into some regular confined space entry too and explaining what the difference is between all of them. We're going to first start out with the news and a little bit of commentary and we're broadcasting from beautiful Clarkstown, New York, where Peace reigns and hatred has no home. Let's go right into our stories. This is coming out from General Sir Richard Shariff from the UK. Very prestigious general. The world must be ready for a nuclear war with Russia. Vladimir Putin's army collapses, an ex Nino chief has warned. We're hearing about this on and on and on. So basically what I am reading throughout the press is that people are concerned if. Vladimir Putin and the Russian Federation launch nuclear weapons, even small ones, to try to win the war in the Ukraine. That's a danger, but also, on the other hand, the danger is if the if the area collapses, if the army collapses, the Russian army, then they may launch uh, nuclear weapons. So, if they're successful. They may launch them, that they're unsuccessful. They may not launch them. They may launch them. We don't know what they're going to do. I think that they're going and they're on one part. Now they have something to talk about, right? With everything. Poland reports this is from Poland. Poland reports a leak in the crude oil pipeline running from, uh, which was a Soviet era pipeline running into Poland and. Western Europe, Eastern and Western Europe. What's funny is the name of the pipeline is Druzhba, which means friendship in Russia. It went into service in the mid-1960s. As uh, we have pointed out, there is a Nord Stream uh, pipeline in the Baltic Sea that also ruptured last month. And was leaking methane gas. It seems like everybody, uh, you know, one side is, is they're like, man, we can't do this. Wildlife, everything else, even with methane gas. But the other, uh, but other people are saying, well, that's not really the issue. It's carbon emissions, right? And it's a greenhouse gas. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's both a problem. I don't know. Both parts are a problem. But the bigger problem is, uh, well, it wasn't running. And if it starts running, now they, ha- they can't. If they want to use it because it has to be re- repaired with this pipeline, the latest pipeline, again, let's talk about that. Pipelines have a lot of maintenance that has to happen. Full di- for full disclosure, I worked with a coding company for many years on these issues with coding process pipes and other pipelines. And it's an issue with maintenance. If this stuff is not maintained properly, you were going to have a problem. It's real simple. We're going to have a problem. It's not maintaining. So in the United States, periodically, usually every 10 to 20 years, you have pipelines have to undergo a big inspection. They may have to do it remotely, visually, what have you. And then once they're inspected, if they need to be repaired, they need to be repaired, that has to be inspected by metallurgists and everything else. And then if those if that's not enough, when it gets coated again, and it's usually three coats of paint, that has to be signed off by what is called a MACE inspector. And I forget what the acronym is there, but it's uh, for coatings inspection. It's uh, r- really a lot to it. Now, with the way things are in some uh, parts of the world, in the United States, we do a pretty good job with the pipelines, believe it or not. Very rarely do you ever hear of a pipeline rupturing, and if it does rupture, then you have capacity in the system, also known as safety, to actually respond to everything. And that's what needs to happen, especially when you have a war going on. I don't think that they're too concerned with maintenance of these pipelines in a lot of these areas. And they're also used as a weapon. Now, a little bit of history here. Why didn't we win World War II? What was one of the reasons? Especially in Europe. I mean, the United States and the Allies. The Germans, right, or the Nazi Empire, whatever we're going to call them, did not have uh, a big capacity at, towards the end of the war for gasoline. And diesel fuel oil, all those fuel oils and everything, things are getting blown up. Things are getting bombed towards the beginning of the war, and even up until the mid 80s, a lot of the wrecks off the coast of New Jersey, where I'm from, were still leaking oil from World War II. And in the 60s, things kept on keep on coming up. I when a ship sinks and it's loaded with oil, stuff comes up for an awfully long time. All right. And when you had a whole bunch of ships going in, and, uh, 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 going in and getting sunk and everything off the coast, beginning of the war, guess what? You have a problem. So somebody came up with the idea during World War II where they were going to go and they were going to build two pipelines coming up from Texas City, Texas, and they were going to come up to New Jersey, specifically Linden, New Jersey. What's now the Bayway Refinery, which is a Philips 66 refinery in Linden. And it's undergone that back then. It was so, right Eastern Standard Oil, and then Exxon and then you know, went through all of these different ownership changes over the year over the years, especially after the Exxon Valdez in 1989. For whatever reason, things started to change hands the risk uh, uh, assessments were done and everything else. They built two pipelines. One was called the Big Inch, and I believe that was 36-inch, and then one was called the Little Inch, which was a 24-inch pipeline up from Texas. They built them very quickly. History Channel had a huge uh, uh, documentary on this years ago. It's probably still available out there. And they fed all of the refineries off into the Northeast, if you want to know where these, these pipelines are coming from Texas, and there are more, it's usually on the northbound side of the New Jersey Turnpike in New Jersey. Those all fed the refineries up here. All right, so you had Texaco in Bayonne. You had the Bayway Refinery in Linden. You also had a Chevron facility. I'm not sure the name of it over in Perthamboy, New Jersey, a.k.a. Barver, New Jersey, and other uh. uh Oil. Uh, no, well they were pumped crude oil. And what happened was when we started doing that in World War II, the ships stopped getting the oil tankers that were coming up from Texas up along the Gulf, uh, through the Gulf, up along the East Coast were not getting destroyed anymore. So pipelines were one of the things that helped us increase our uh, refining capacity and make it uh, safer to transport oil without worrying about sinking. It's very controversial, but in my opinion, the pipelines tend to be a safer way of transporting oil, gasoline, and everything else. Last thing you want is to start putting things on rail lines, and that's very controversial up here where I'm from, where for years, up until energy policy changed recently, they put things on trains. Trains derail. You put it on the road, truck, trucks derail. Uh, uh, trucks get into accidents. They're all, brings a whole bunch of other stuff. Pipeline, everything's pretty contained. You can monitor it and everything else. It's a much safer way so of uh, doing this. If this whole thing goes major in Europe, imagine putting all of this stuff on tankers and, or in the Ukraine. You put, now all of a sudden you have. Environment, not only environmental issues, but you have ships sinking, you have human... It's going to be a nightmare. So I, we just need to let this stuff play out. Our next story, ACT test scores dropped to the lowest levels in more than 30 years. The testing uh, organization uh, says that uh, scores are down because of... Uh, they're blaming on the pandemic. Everything's blamed on the pandemic. Uh, but what, so usually when schools, at least when I went to school and from what I see in my community here, Clarkstown Central School District, they prep the kids for these standardized tests, starting in like third grade, where my son was in third grade last year. And this lack of preparation, because there is a strategy for taking a standardized test, as if you're a safety professional who's taken one, there's always a strategy and the kids aren't learning this. Uh, I don't know what the long-term effects of this are going to be. Uh, According to, I was having a conversation with a parent of an older student today who said that they don't even ask for these tests, any results, a lot of colleges. So I don't know what the long-term effects are. I think uh, we're going to probably have a problem uh, later on uh, over the next coming years with this. Uh, With this, because what happens? The kids, especially the ACT, it's a much more, in my opinion, a much more broad-based test that tests science, history, and things from when I, unless they change it from when I took it. And so I think a better indicator of the student. However, what happens if our students are getting into the workplace, they can't read or write? We have major literacy issues then. What if we have people that? No, they don't. Under you can't explain safety data sheets. You can't explain fall protection distances, basic engineering principles, basic uh, science principles, toxicology. Just think of what goes into a forty-hour hazardous waste operations and emergency uh, uh, response course. Basically, a whole lot of science and a whole lot of math and a whole lot of everything, depending on who's taking the course. And to not teach. And to not be able to comprehend this is in in itself a safety issue for the workers. We, uh, the Centers for Disease Control uh, released a study last month on the, we covered it on the podcast, of the Gulf oil spill workers where we were forced, right, as companies to take people who were from at-risk communities and maybe didn't even have an education, put them into a uh, 40-hour hazard class, and literally it was like an advanced STEM course, right? Uh, Like we would teach a child for a lot of these people because they had no field experience doing anything, no work experience. And lo and behold, these are the folks who are finding out uh, now 10 years later that have all the health issues here disproportionately. Maybe this had something to do with their education level and everything else. This is a story out of uh, the New York Times did what is called a visual investigation of the Uvalde uh, massacre and put things together. And a couple of hours before the show started, Alex Jones was, and then you say, "Well, you're, how are you going to put this together?" Alex Jones uh, was ordered to pay, and I'm sure it's going to be appealed, and I doubt the people who sued are going to get much money, if any, uh, with the way things work out. Uh, lost a $950 million lawsuit uh, for uh, that was filed against him from the uh, parents of the Sandy Hill Elementary School. And allegedly, right, he said... Uh, he was promoting people and even saying himself that this massacre didn't happen and blah, blah, blah. He got sued. And I blame part of what happened was on the news rushing to judgment during this whole massacre 10 years ago. There were all different kinds of reports. This Everyone wanted to be first. So this happened and that happened and this happened. And what happens? Eventually, there is misunderstanding. It's fodder for conspiracy theorists. to go out there and come up with all different kinds of stuff. After that, if you notice, the news media is a little bit, okay, well, we're not going to do that anymore, try to be first in these high-profile cases. And it's not like it was that day, especially living in the general area. We had to hear about it, and we had uh, family members, uh, I'm sorry, uh, church members that had family members who were impacted by the tragedy and everything. So... It was somewhat local here. Well, here we have it with Uvalde. The New York Times apparently did a huge investigation, and what we were being led to believe, at least according to the article by Robin Stein and Alexander Cardia, uh, released today on the New York Times website, that it may not be like we were told or what what we were left to believe. And I'm sure there's going to be a – big investigation here and everything else, because essentially uh, the uh, narrative is that the school police chiefs misread the threats and everything else. But according to this article, a lot of other people did also. So again, rush to judgment. We talked about this on the show where we get these people out there in charge of accident investigations uh, general contractors and what have you, where they say, well, we got to get the report out as soon as possible. We had to be out within 24 hours, 48 hours. Well, guess what? Maybe you could come up with a preliminary report and do you know, follow uh, that safety sage, Todd Conklin's advice, right? Three things. This is what we know, this is what we don't know, this is what we're trying to find out, and this is what we're doing, right? Those, those are the three things that we try to do. Uh, maybe... You could issue that within 24 hours, 48 hours with some of these accidents. With some of these larger accidents, you need to right, take your time, do the investigation, get to the bottom of things because it's happened more than one time with me where I was forced in the beginning of my career to get everything done one, two, three because that's the nature of the business. That's the corporate culture. And then a year later, you find out, holy shit, I was wrong. <laughs> right? And maybe uh, we could have had a better uh, solution or outcome here. Something like that. All right, so don't do a rush to judgment with any of these acts investigations, whether it's on the news or in, uh, no, uh, on the news or in your workplace. Some environmental news. We have... 477 whales die in heartbreaking New Zealand standing. So this is out of Wellington, New Zealand. Some 477 pilot whales have died after stranding themselves onto two remote New Zealand beaches in recent days. It's no heart wrenching. I remember growing up with the save the whale campaigns and we still get save the whale campaigns in one form or another, just not overtly now. Uh, but, uh, now, this, uh, the deaths came. There were 200 other pilot whales that died in Australia. And trying to get to the bottom of this would be a thing, buddy. That is a horrible thing. The whales are dying over there. Going on, and let's take a break here.
0: professional safety
1: community communication and
0: planning are just a few keys to your program's success the question many practitioners have is where do i start dr jay allen the creator of the safety fm platform and host of the rated r safety show has built a global foundation to help you along the way. Go to safetyfm.com and listen to some of the industry's best and most involved professionals, including Blaine Hoffman with the Safety Pro, Sam Goodman with the Hop Nerd, Sheldon Primus with the Safety Consultant, Jim Pozel with Safety Wars, Emily Elrod with Unapologetically Bold,
1: Now we're going to move on to, I'll just entitle this, preface this, when people are effed up. All right. I don't know how else to say this. German far-right politician danced on the Holocaust Memorial. This is out of uh, Berlin. The Israelis ambassador in Berlin had slammed a member of the far-right Alternative for Germany party for appearing to dance on the country's Holocaust Memorial. I tell you what, I have zero patience for people who do, who do stuff like this. Holocaust deniers, anything like that. Uh, I don't know. It's very, uh, I don't know what they're trying to prove here with this stuff. Uh, uh, the politician, I'm not going to even mention his name, has for shame upon himself and his party. And, and this was done uh, at a memorial in Berlin for more than the 6 million Jews murdered by Nazis in the Holocaust. Right there, and let me point out that it's been a very well documented uh, number. There, I had to take two courses in college on this. Uh, on one was called the Holocaust, the other one the Arab Israeli conflict. Where we went into this, and uh, the Holocaust one was taught by a Holocaust survivor, name, and his name is Rabbi Cohn uh, from South Jersey, Atlantic County. Murray Cohn was his name. I don't know if he's still alive or not, uh, but uh, it was horrible. Uh, I remember a number of years ago, uh, I, we met a Holocaust survivor and uh, who had the tattoo, the number tattoo on his forearm, and my son probably does remember this, but I said, can I see, I, look, I don't want to be rude, can I see the tattoo, even though my son right, probably won't remember it. I I'm, know it's important that we, witness this because there's sick people out there who think that the Holocaust never happened. And the guy said, no, no, no. Well, yeah, here it is. And it's just one of those things. It's very upsetting. Uh, as you recall, uh, my own family situation with the Soviet refugee camps, the expatriation from Poland, that was covered up in this country for many years because they were allies with the Soviet Union. And that was not even acknowledged in any class and things like that. They weren't the only ones, the polls. There were millions of other people that went through the same thing. But to not to have it recognized and people said, well, that never happened. It's very upsetting. I empathize. Believe it. Believe me. I get it. That's why we did the program in February with Imaging Salva on an interview of her book, One Star Away. We're going to have her on again uh, one of these days. We're going to go into some uh, financial news, and then we're going to uh, talk about uh, OSHA stuff after that, so here's the financial news. The markets are generally down today. Dow Jones Industrial Market dropped to 29,210.85. S&P 500, 3577, drop also. NASDAQ dropped to 10,417. Russell, 2,000, 1687. U.S. uh, Treasury note fell to 3.9. And uh, let's see, what's the other one? We have Bitcoin at 19,166.12. Crude oil is down 87.17. Now the precious metals. Gold is up today, 1684.50. Silver up nine cents to nineteen thirty. Platinum up three dollars to nine oh four. Palladium sank uh $1.40. Uh, by $1.40 to $21.66. The big story in metals today is aluminum. Aluminum prices are up 7% after the report of a U.S. man on Russian supplies. Let me, uh, now a little bit of trivia for you. Washington Monument in Washington, D.C. has, at the top of the cap, or at the point, at the time it was the most expensive metal around it was made out of, which was aluminum in the 1850s, mid-1850s. I think they didn't finish that until after the Civil War. So what, what's uh, my point is, once they found an easier way to smelt silver, it, the price dropped. So uh, for it to be up, since there's a reported ban on Russian aluminum, right, uh, the benchmark aluminum was up uh, 3.3% at $2,309 a ton, right, after briefly spiking to $2,400 a ton. Biden administration is concerning raising tariffs on Russian aluminum so to levels so punitive that they would effectively ban Russian aluminum. And, uh, you know, that's you know, weird times we live in. We're going to talk about health here for a second here. how And this has been in the news extensively. How a diabetes drug became the talk of Hollywood tech and the Hamptons. So Zempic. This is from the Wall Street Journal. Ozempic and other injections meant to treat chronic medical conditions like diabetes are in high demand among elites looking to lose a little weight. This is the Hollywood drug. That's the byline. So Ozempic, in case you haven't turned on the TV in the last five years, and you see it like every commercial break on cable TV, is a a drug that diabetics take. It's an essential drug. A lot of insurance companies don't cover it. Because it's about nine hundred dollars, give or take a month, and what it does is, uh, this is what happened with insulin. And I'm not a medical doctor. I'm giving peer-to-peer. This is a peer-to-peer discussion. If you have to, are diabetic or have a medical issue, talk to your doctor. Don't talk to your safety professional. All right? It's just like uh, you know, don't do what the uh, what the government did. You know, where they were medical professionals giving you advice on. Uh, uh, respiratory protection that might not have been very accurate, right? We're not going to do the same if there's a medical situation. Talk to a doctor. Don't talk to a safety professional. How's that? We'll be better than they are. So that's my little commentary, but you're going to get it here from me. So Ozempic and uh, so Ozempic is used to uh, control blood sugar. What? So you have insulin, which has been a standalone from like the 1920s. And various forms of so like six or seven different forms of insulin, maybe more. It's been reformulated and everything else. And that's been the so what happens is with type 2 diabetes, your body cannot regulate sugar, cannot regulate it. You're insulin resistant, meaning your body loses the ability, uh, uses its sensitivity to insulin, and insulin is what causes uh, your food to turn into sugars and enter into your cells, specifically insulin enters, helps sugar enter your cells. If you're insulin resistant, the sugar will not enter your cells, and then you pee it out. And that causes all different types of toxicity issues and everything else. Type 1 diabetic cannot make insulin. So it's a different thing. So a common treatment and the cheapest treatment often for diabetics is first they start with metformin which is, uh, that's a generic drug, I won't mention the commercial name, which helps your liver stop making glucose, especially at night and when you don't need it. And then there's other drugs that go in there that they put you on. And then the third drug is some type of injectable, usually, not necessarily, but usually. And in the past, it's been insulin. The problem with insulin is, is that it causes a lot of weight gain. Depending on what it is, some of the, uh, I think you have short-term and long-term insulins or once a day, twice a day before each meal, all different things you need to get with a doctor and it's all self-managed. So what happens is uh, Ozempic causes your body, your pancreas to release more insulin and regulates, from what I've read, five other micro-hormones in your system, in your digestive system, which... Negates or reduces the need for insulin. And also, as a side effect, it causes weight loss. How much? I don't know. I'm not a doctor. So, what has happened is people who could afford $900 a month because insurance may not pick this up for dieting purposes, they go to Ozempic uh, and they get the doctors go and give them prescriptions for this stuff because it causes you to lose weight. Well, what's going on is is that so many people are using Ozempic to lose weight, and there is no generic, that there's now a shortage of Ozempic. So, for example, our listeners in Australia have been dealing with an Ozempic shortage for a long time. Now, there are some people and doctors say, well, insulin is better than Ozempic and everything else. Take it from people with experience with it. Ozempic is a lot easier to manage than insulin. And a lot of people have a lot of other positive effects, not only weight loss from Ozempic. So there's some debate what's better, the insulin or the Ozempic, right, with this. Again, this is peer-to-peer advice. You got to talk to your doctor. So there's a huge thing. Now it's getting to the point when the people who need it who are diabetic, cannot get that. Cannot get it. We're having a shortage right now in my town where none of the pharmacies have Ozempic. Now they can't supply because it's such high demand. And this is uh, an issue here. So I don't know. It's a uh, no weight loss drug. but uh, There's a shortage here. So that's what the whole down low for that is with a check with your doctor. Now on to the OSHA stuff, right? Bomb Squad clears suspected dynamite dynamite that closed Mameranek Avenue. So this was from um, a a local story up here in Westchester County, where workers were excavating a, a, a road for road work, and they found what they thought to be an explosive device. Now, here's my question. Does your crew doing an excavation. Were they as sharp as these guys apparently were? And these women were apparently, were they identified the, uh, an explosive device in there? Uh, authorities went there and say, they think the wires may have been left behind with no device. They say if there was some type of explosive device, it degraded since construction 70 years ago, and then there's no longer any risk. Now you may be saying, well, that sounds like a nefarious thing. Well, right here in New Jersey, Route 78 is being uh, widened in the western, uh, northwestern part of the state, and they're using explosives and other things to take out, to widen the road. Part, probably, from what I recall from the geology of this area, that might have been the same thing uh, over here, where the, they might have had uh, been using this 70 years ago when they built the, uh, the uh, road, might have been left behind, that sort of thing. Are you, So are your workers, pardon me, are your workers trained in this when they're doing an excavation? That's got to be something that you have to consider. Here we have our next story is a man in New Mexico uh, died in a construction accident this week on Tuesday uh, when they were going. Uh, uh, let, let's see the details here. The uh, driver was driving up, driving north up a hill at a construction site, uh, just outside of uh, north of the Saline River. For unknown reason, the vehicle lost power. The vehicle rolled down the hill to the south and struck another loader. Right. The occupant of the second vehicle uh, from New Mexico was killed in the collusion. It's unknown if the fatality of uh, per, the person killed was on the second person vehicle's platform or on the ground next to the vehicle at the time of the collision. Something, again, this it sounds like one of those things that just happens. They lost power. Hopefully the investigation is going to find out what goes on, uh, what exactly went on, and what are they going to be looking at? They're going to lo- be looking at vehicle maintenance records, and I'm going to tell you, and I'm this is going to piss some of you people off out there. First question in this is going to be: Was there an inspection checklist? First question, guaranteed. Was there an inspection checklist associated with this? Uh, with this. So, really important thing because then if there wasn't an inspection checklist or an inspection program or something like that that they're going to use that as a leading indicator to say that the company that the company or the operator made a mistake with this and then they're going to say well they didn't have a good safety program and a whole bunch of other things because the workers comp and I'm assuming that this is uh, this person was an employee, not a subcontractor or something. The company is liable under the workers comp stuff. It's a no fault policy. If there's a GC involved with this general contractor or construction management firm, whatever we're calling them nowadays, they could most likely be sued over this. And that's why it's important that the GC is, keeps track of this stuff because that's their biggest liability with everything. And so don't have to pay right with that. again, we're now. How how is this going to come out? If the victim uh, uh, had a history of not working safely and no one did anything about it, someone's going to have a problem here. This is an, a, a a weird one. A weird put this under weird uh, OSHA violations. So, uh, up in Holyoke, Connecticut. A marijuana cultivation worker died in January and could not breathe after inhaling ground cannabis dust at the site. So, while filling pre-rolls at the facility, a 27-year-old said she could not breathe and died at a uh, medical facility later on. So... What did the company allegedly get cited for? And again, everyone's innocent till proven guilty, and these things get negotiated down. On June 30th, OSHA fined a company a total of $35,000 plus for three violations of a hazard communication standard, alleging the company did not compile lists of hazardous chemicals at the facility, did not obtain or develop a safety data sheet for a hazardous chemical, and did not provide employees with information and training about working with hazardous chemicals. So here's my question, would be, in this company, is uh, cannabis a hazardous material? I would say it is, because it's, uh, it is, because it does issue give, give a physiological impact. So at just under that, I would call this a hazardous material at this point. I think this is one of the, uh, this is one of the, Uh, externalities, we'll use an economic term, unintended consequence of legalizing marijuana and in a lot of states is that people uh, don't, uh, a lot of these companies did not realize that this was going on, that they they could be held liable on this. A lot of people who've gotten involved in this uh, field that I've known uh, with selling it and everything, they, well-intentioned, and everything else, but they may not be aware of all the hazards, and that's why it's important that you actually go and hire a qualified health and safety professional with this and have set up a system there uh, in your workplace to address safety hazards. And where can you get that? You can go and email me at safetywords.com or call me at 845-269-5772. We're going to take a brief break and then we're going to uh, go into our main event, which is permit required confined spaces. We're going to give an overview. You are listening to safety wars tomorrow's safety today. Okay, we're back. We're going to talk about permit required confined spaces, uh, generally. But we're going to first going to go into a favorite topic uh, topic of mine, and also Sheldon Primus too. He gets a kick out of this, right? On the safety consultant podcast, right here on the Safety FM Network. Regulations. Where am I? So you're going to say, well, what's the difference here? What we're seeing a lot of is companies still, in the the construction industry, still uh, regulating their confined spaces as general industry ones. Because what the idea was, uh, for uh, August 2015, there was no construction confined space entry regulation. And what companies did was they said, well, since there's no regulation, we're not going to worry about it. And if they find us, it's going to be under general duty clause. Guess what? Very difficult to find someone under the general duty clause. So what happened? The uh, So they still don't have training. I go into facilities all the time and I mentioned, okay, confident person for confined space. Well, we don't need one, it's not in the regulation. Well, you're doing construction work. So first thing you have to figure out, like with all regulations is where are you in the construction, uh, in the regulation? So in general, you, you can be in either gen- shipyard, right? Or marine, right? Uh, maritime, agriculture, construction, or general industry OSHA does not have a definition for general industry, but what they do is they have it for construction work and it's an exclusionary definition. So in general industry, uh, in the general industry in the 29 CFR 1910.12 you have for the purposes of this section construction work means work for construction alteration and or repair including painting and decorating. Okay, that's construction. In the construction industry regulation, it's a 1926.32G. Construction work, for the purposes of this section, construction work means work for construction, alteration, and or repair, including painting and decorating. So you have to figure out, where are you? Are you in that? One of those. So if uh, you're not in construction, are you in shipyard? Right, except where otherwise, sh- uh, right, otherwise provided, the provisions of this fart shall, this is from the shipyard definition, right, from part 1915.2. Except where otherwise provided, the provisions of this far shall apply to all ship repairing, ship building, and ship breaking employment. So, unless you have a ship, you don't have to worry about being in shipyards, right, with those terminals. Then you have part 1917.1, the regulations of this fart apply to a- employment within a marine terminal including the loading, unloading, movement, and or other handling of cargo, ship's stores, or gear within the terminal or into or out of any land carrier, holding or consolidation area, and any other activity within the associated with the overall operation and functions of a terminal. Right? There's an exclusion for a oil terminal. If you're in the oil or chemical industry, you're not a marine terminal. Right? Oil industry, not a marine terminal. Then you have long shoring, where it says cargo transfer with the use of shore-based material handling devices is covered by Part 1970. That's the long shoring, if you have uh, things being, uh, cargo being transferred. Then agriculture, there's no specific definition of agriculture, but basically uh, the uh, but the definition, according to definitions, USLegal.com, it refers to farm a farm as any land used to produce crops, livestock, specialty livestock, or grazing, and includes woodland and wasteland, not under cultivation or use for pasture or grazing. According to the U.S. government, a farm is any place from which $1,000 or more of agricultural products were produced and sold or normally would have been sold during the census year. So essentially, if it's not agriculture, Not long shoring, not construction, not marine terminals, not shipyard. Therefore it's general industry unless it's construction. And of course you have the general duty clause, which is a catch all. Some States like California do not have a general duty clause. That's why everything is explicitly written in the cap for under the Cal OSHA regulations is that they do not have a general industry uh, thing. So, you have to figure out what you're doing. So if you're in a, con- let's talk about confined spaces in construction, uh, which is basically the same as general industry, except for a couple of nuances. So uh, first you have to figure out if you have a confined space. So confined spaces mean that. It's large enough and configured that an employee can bodily enter and perform assigned work Has limited or restrictive means for entry and exit and is not designed for continuous employee occupancy. And if you have a confined space, you have to work safely, basically. Okay, makes sense. Then you have what is called a permit required confined space where it has to be the three things I just mentioned and it has an, at least one additional Problem a hazardous atmosphere, an engulfing material, converging walls, or other safety hazard. Okay. That's very important on that. If it has one of those or other, now it's a permit required confined space. Let me back up. Shipyards in the nineteen fifteen standard have what is called a confined and enclosed space and many of and that is managed significantly different than construction or general industry last uh, a couple of weeks ago, an Amish family was killed in an agricultural environment by in a confined space. But what happened is since they were not employees, OSHA does not apply. And that's a problem with agriculture sometimes. So the, so you're just, you found out you're in a permit required confined space all right, and so under the regulation for all confined spaces, permit or not, you have to have what is called a confident person, right? And what's a confident person? Real simple. Someone who's able, and it's usually through uh, education, training, or experience, preferably all three, but not necessarily all three, is able to assess hazards and correct them. If a person cannot, and we have this discussion regularly, if a person cannot, correct an issue, then they're not a confident person. The person cannot assess an issue, they're not a confident person. All right, so it has to be both. Identify, right? Assess and correct. What kind of ha- atmospheric hazards are you going to have in a permit required confined space? All right. so an atmospheric hazard means it's greater than 10% of its lower flammable limit or LEL. An o- o- oxygen content Uh, outside either lower than 19.5% or above 23.5%. However, let me point out that oxygen has to be measured first and an atmospheric concentration of any substance that exceeds its permissible exposure limit or any other atmospheric condition that is immediately dangerous to life and health. What does that mean? It means you better know what you're doing is what it means and to have a confident person out there and a, a, an attendant, we're going to talk about that in a minute here, who is able to assess those, and those can only be assessed through air monitoring, real-time air monitoring. You can also have an asphyxiating atmosphere, right? Uh, no, if it's over the PEL, may not be real time, but you have to do something. There has to be whatever is appropriate, some kind of air sampling or air monitoring. You can have an asphyxiating atmosphere from a chemical reaction. Maybe oxygen in the air is replaced by other g- gases. Oxygen is uh, consumed. You can also have a toxic atmosphere where there develops some type of toxic things. Normal things that you might see, from, and it's usually from decaying organic material, is uh, hydrogen sulfide, uh, from exhaust, uh, incomplete combustion, carbon monoxide, or even that could be from welding. If you're going to be welding inside a uh, confined space. Solvents or other chemicals. Flammable atmosphere, again, you're introducing that or it's coming into that. But it could also be a flammable dust. You can have an engulfment hazard where people are engulfed by silage, by material in there. You can also have physical hazards, moving parts, electrical hazards. Contents are pressurized. You can have lockout, tagout. You can have... Uh, lines coming in there that carry material that are not disconnected, that need to be blanked or blocked or physically disconnected, and any other number of hazards, including noise, uh, reflections from welding, falling tools, fall hazards, temperatures, anything like that. And your uh, the regulation requires a permit be issued by the facility and or by a permit issuer, somebody in charge. And there are three basic, for the actual permit space entry team, there are three roles. You have an authorized entrant who, the whole watch, I'm sorry, the authorized entrant who's allowed to go in and work in there who has the proper training for that. as to know the hazards, use the equipment properly, and communicate changes looking for emergency, uh, for, no, co- prohibited conditions, odors, smells, anything that's on that permit that's assessed. The attendant has to be there. Whole watch, who's there, who does not go into the space. 60% of, so I'm told, of the fatalities in a confined space are from would be rescuers. This is what apparently happened to this family in Pennsylvania, where one person went down and three other people went in there, it was an atmospheric hazard. And what's that person's job is to monitor space, uh, do air monitoring, take a head count. Recognize behavioral effects. Anything in that per, in that space that goes on in communication. Uh, stop unauthorized entry and perform a non-entry rescue. So, in a rescue, if you have to rescue someone, you dial nine one one and then you start with a non-entry rescue, right? And you always call nine one one because now it may be your first date issue and you need to get the the crew the, there as. As soon as possible or you have to have an on-site rescue team that's there immediately this way you're able to get someone out of there immediately right you have to figure out what's the right and this is a two three-day course under osha osha i believe it's 2264 the course is three days for permit required confined space you also have to have an entry level supervisor an entry supervisor and that supervisor does all the supervising work and also has to arrange for rescue and emergency services and verify that they are there. And that's basically it with the, uh, confined spaces. It's one of the biggest training classes, most common ones that we do here at safety wars for our clients is with, uh, 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 uh is with permit required confined space. Uh, let me do a preview here because this just came across the screen. Uh, the program after this is Free Accident Investigations, and Todd Conklin will be. Uh, uh, right, we were having this come across. P A P A Pod two hundred nine. The Five Principles of Human Performance book is now available. So he's going to be talking about one of his books on human performance. I've read this book. This is actually a really good book. So back to confined spaces. You need. What do I see the problems usually with them? People don't know what they're doing. They think that they're going to go and look on the internet and have, uh, like we've had here, a 20 minute discussion on permit required confined spaces. And Oh my God, I'm qualified to be a confined space entry supervisor. And I'm qualified to be a confident person. I'm qualified for this. I'm qualified for that. Nothing could be furthered from the truth. Me. Nothing can be further from the truth. These courses, like I said, OSHA's course is three days. At least it was when I took it. This is an ongoing thing. Right now, I am working on a project where uh, the confined space hazards were such that they, it was called out that the supervisor and the uh, attendant had to be credentialed for, had to like, CSV, CIH, and that level of credentialing. But well, that even that wasn't good enough. They actually had to get somebody with specific experience in confined spaces. So I was given a phone call. Hey Jim, can you please handle this? I said, Well, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years. I said I'm probably not the person for the first or second year person would be appropriate, maybe a little bit more. And they said, No, no, they want somebody with direct experience with supervising these things. As well, I've done it for 30 years, but more specifically for 13 years, I've done hundreds of uh, permit-required confined spaces in the oil industry and and some other applications. So you got to get someone out there that you know what they're doing, that knows what they're doing with this, who's able to assess these hazards and has backbone. So So when there's a hazard and they say, hey, get out of that space, it's a prohibited condition, they get out of that space. The entrant. Somebody with discipline not to run into the space and to coordinate emergency operations up to a point until the rescuers get there. So you need to have someone trustworthy. You have to have someone that really knows what they're doing here. It can't be the oh yeah, I sent them out for an hour of class or we watched it on the internet and now they know all about it. That's not the way it works here. Especially if someone gets hurt. I hate to be a uh, on the uh, receiving end of that deposition. Oh, well, what experience do you have in a confined space injury? Well, I took a half an hour long class. Oh, great. <laughs> a lot of times, and uh, the construction industry is having issues here where people have said, well, I've been doing this for 30 years. I don't need to do any of this stuff. It's not a hazard. What I make a requirement is, is that the competent person has got to make in writing Or it could be an email, even a text message I'll take. But something in writing that states that whether something is a permit required confined space or is not. There has to be an assessment done. How detailed? That's up to you if you're in charge, how detailed it needs to be. But there has to be something. Uh, Last year I was on a job and uh, a bunch of guys were entering into a space and I got it, I, well, I knew that there was no hazard there, and they were on their way out, right, well, from my own assessment, but I was not legally the person out there. I took a picture of them exiting the space. So I called up their supervisor, and the supervisor says, Jimmy, what are you talking about? You're nuts. Sort of, no, no, this was like the guys, right, with the fall protection the other night I was telling you about. It says to me, Jim, you're nuts. They're not in there. I said, okay, hold on. You buy your phone? Yeah, I texted him. I said, they, they told you that they're not in there. He said, yeah. Well, I said, well, you got two problems here. One, they were in there. Number two, they're lying to you. What are you going to do about it? Again, trying to gaslight me. This didn't happen. I have it on video, dude. It happened. Well, that's not so not- Well, you know, it is the way it is. Uh, I don't like to get into adversarial situations, as everyone knows. But this is what happens. So, uh, the safety war. What is it? It's a war against the hazards. It's a war against the attitudes. It's a war for your safety, not against anybody. It's for your safety. You're fighting that safety war every day, day in and day out. And that's what we're dedicated in doing, is helping people. And have a nice night, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow. any form or by any means mechanical electronic recording or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast jay allen and good night from our safety wars team and the team over here at safety fm make sure you go out there tomorrow and work safely and we'll see you back here tomorrow night if all goes well